0: our attention to our text. The last of the great Old Testament covenants is contained in this chapter of the scriptures, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I say the last of the Old Testament covenants. The greatest covenant being the new covenant in the New Testament. Jesus initiates that for us. But all of the five covenants, great covenants of the Old Testament, point to that great covenant in Christ. Each having a specific emphasis, and we're going to look at that a little bit during the Sunday school class today. I must admit, at the outset of this sermon, we're going to look at this covenant, but we're only going to very just scratch the top of it. I mean, volumes could be written just from this single chapter in the Scriptures alone. Volumes. And I'm not overstating my, my point there at all. But we're only going to look at two things today. God's promise to build a house in the lineage of David and God's house is a house of everlasting mercy. Those are the two great truths that I want to glean from the passage today for the benefit of our congregation. That's not to say that's all that's there. There's much more there, but time doesn't permit that. But those two truths, I think, impact us in ways that we don't understand or don't appreciate, probably would be a better way to say it. In ways that we don't appreciate, that I hope by the end of the sermon, your appreciation will have been elevated by the illumination of this text through the Holy Spirit. So let's begin. The promises to build a house in the lineage of David. Our passage begins with David in his palace having been given rest from his enemies by the hand of God. No longer is he considering the actions of armies that could threaten him. They have been conquered, and God has delivered his enemies into his hands. Remember in the previous chapter, uh, or previous two chapters, that the people of Israel had been threatened by the Philistines. Uh, David went up, conquered Jerusalem, and uh, they inhabited Jerusalem that Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent uh, men to help build uh, David a palace in Jerusalem. Uh, a, A Gentile king sent workers as well as materials to help build that house. He would later send workers and material to help Solomon build the temple, the house that's promised in this passage. And the Philistines now have this mighty king on the edge of their territory, less than 50 miles away from Ashkelon, one of the five great cities of the Philistines. 50 miles away, the Philistines are now... uh, Israel has been reunited. It was in civil war for seven years, reunited. They are a threat to Philistia, and the Philistines come to uh, the Valley of Rephium, the Valley of the Giants, and, of course, uh, the great giant Goliath had come with them once before... Uh, but now they had come on the edge of, of uh, the people of Israel. David doesn't march his army out right away to meet them. David goes to prayer and asks the Lord for guidance, which we pointed out a couple weeks ago. That th- that's what every general ought to do before he goes to war. He got to drop to his knees and ask God, "What do I do next? How do I respond to the threat?" Brethren, that's how we have to, to be as well when threats come at us, whether they be internal or external. We have many external threats coming against the church these days. It's important that we spend time on our knees asking God how do we respond to the threat. David does that. And he goes out to the valley of Ephraim, a frontal attack, sweeps the field. The Philistines they're so routed, they leave their idols behind. And the Bible tells us that those idols are gathered up by David and taken away and destroyed. And then the Philistines somehow reconstitute themselves, come back again. David goes to the Lord and says, do I fight them again? The Lord says, yeah, but this time don't do a frontal attack. I want you to go around behind them. And I want you to wait until you see the rustling of the wind in the tops of the mulberry trees, and then I want you to take them from the rear. And once again it happens. He sweeps the field. And that, we saw, was a pointing to the first attack, the frontal attack was Christ going against his enemies, the second, the Holy Spirit coming behind as a wind sweeping the field, much like at the day of Pentecost, that God is showing us what's going to happen in the future by these pictures in the Old Covenant. Brethren, a new picture is about to be had. And this picture is incredibly important to our faith. Incredibly important. David's is, David is in his palace. His enemies have been routed. There's really no threat left. Remember in the last chapter that he went to, to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to set it up for the worship of God, the right worship of God in the, in the tabernacle. You remember that it was waylaid for a bit because of, of, uh, of uh, Uzzah sticking out his hand to steady it on the cart, and Uzzah being killed by God, his life taken for presuming to, to touch the ark without authority. And yet, and then, and then the ark is taken to Obed-Edom's house. A, a Gentile's house, the son of an Edomite. And, and his house is blessed there. And that being a picture of God bringing his blessing to the Gentiles. And now the, the ark has been moved from that place to not Mount Moriah, where the temple would be built, but where the tent, the tabernacle, has been set up on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And that's significant. I don't have time to unpack that, but that alone's worth at least two sermons. The fact that the tabernacle is not put, or the Ark of the Covenant is not put where it would ultimately wind up, but it's put on Mount Zion. And in both the Psalms as as well as the book of Revelation, Zion is an important place. Paul and Peter both speak of Zion in the New Testament as being the important place, and yet the The temple is on Mount Moriah. But what about this tabernacle place? The New Testament speaks to that as being evidence of God's making a house of prayer for all nations. Of which we are a part. Well, I don't have time to go there. But David, he's sitting in his his palace and he's contemplating, wait a minute. The mercy seat of God is in a tent... And I'm in a house built of cedar. The choicest trees of the area. How does that happen? How does it, that, that I have that great blessing and God has no place to dwell but a tent? I want to build him a house. And Nathan, it's significant that Nathan's right at his side, I think. Remember, they, you know, we have Bibles littering our houses, or probably you do, I know <laughs> we do. <laughs> Bibles everywhere, you're, you're on your phones, on your computers. I mean, the Word of God, it's everywhere. The glory of the knowledge of the Lord really does cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, at least digitally. Uh, and that's a good thing, by the way. But in his day, David's day, the kings were supposed to, each year, write out longhand the law of God. That was one of the commandments that came... In the, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. We don't know if David did that, but at least he has Nathan nearby, the prophet of God, the one who brings a word from God. He's, he's right there at hand, and Nathan observes David's lamenting over where God's house, what the, the, the nature of God's house, and, and uh, Nathan says, do what your heart's desire is, meaning go ahead and build that house for the Lord. Now, it was it presumptuous on Nathan's part Because that night, the Lord would come to him and say, wait a minute, slow down. I don't want that to happen yet. Was it presumptuous? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think think Nathan understood David's heart. Remember, he was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. He was trying to honor God as best he could in in the ways he knew best. Yet God is going to inter, inter. Pose something different and I'm going to try to to bring when we get to the second part of the sermon I'm going to try to bring out the purpose of that the nature of the house being a, a house of mercy but Nathan says do as your heart desires it's almost as if Augustine you remember St. Augustine from your history lessons I hope if not come back next week because I'm going to teach that Sunday school class on St. Augustine Uh but Augustine, he's famously having said, love God with your whole heart and do as you please. Love, your God, love God with your whole heart and do as you please. Well, what? that's almost scary to think that notion, right? Because our, our hearts are often desperately wicked, aren't they? Well, that's why he puts the first part of that sentence where he does. Love God with your whole heart and then do as you please. Meaning, Embrace the ways of God in in your heart completely and then act it out. Let your hands do the work of God, the kingdom of God. But the heart has to change first. The heart has to change first. Well, David's like his fathers before him. He wants to build a monument for God because of God's great mercies. God's delivered all the enemies of Israel into his hands. He he's reclining in the palace he doesn't have to get up in the spring and go to war with his enemies they've been vanquished so he's contemplating how do you live in peace how do you live in the days of peace what do you do all he's known is war I mean he's not that old he's in his early 30s at this point but for the last 12 to 15 years he's known nothing but war but now it's over The war's done. What do I do now? So he's looking around. He sees this tent. That's where God lives. Then he looks at his palatial home and says, well, there's a disparity here that's got to be fixed. This is wrong. It's got to be fixed. That very night, the Lord visits the prophet Nathan and reveals to Nathan a different plan. In this visitation from God, the wisdom of God shines forth, illuminating to Nathan and David a great covenant that remains to this very day and shall continue eternally. God is going to give Nathan a profound word for David, an eternal covenant that not only touches David, but his son and his Seed, right down to Jesus Christ, and to you and me who are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And I'll get to that in a few moments. But before considering some of those aspects, the aspects of that covenant, some of the ramifications, and in Sunday school I hope to, to speak to more of the ramifications of the covenant. I want us to consider some of the details that we find in the passage. In verse 6, God says to Nathan, I have not heretofore needed a dwelling place other than the tabernacle, which I designed to this day, and this is because Israel has wandered. God says, I haven't needed a house like David's house. I haven't needed it. Why? Because I'm moving Israel all over the place. I'm moving them around, and I want to dwell with my people where they go. Remember, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. They'd been under the judges for a long period of time, and everyone was doing right in what was right in his own eyes. They finally cry out to God, give us a king like the other nations. We don't know if that was in, obviously it wasn't in faith that they asked for that, because God, by his uh, servant Samuel, says, you don't know what you're asking for. You're asking for a curse when you want a king like the other nations. I want to be your king, God says. And they they reject that because they had no faith. They had very little faith. David gives them a king just like other nations. Very self-centered. A man who was envious, not, not just to a fault, but to his own demise. A man who didn't seek God's face, but rather sought... Wisdom from mediums, the witch of Endor. That's the kind of king they got. And then God graciously and mercifully provides them a man who has a heart after God, David. The enemies are vanquished. Peace has come to Israel. And now all of a sudden, David wants to build this house. The Lord says, wait a minute, I haven't needed your help for a new dwelling place all of these years. He tells us to Nathan in verse 6. And in verse 7, have I ever complained of not having a house all the days I've guided and directed my chosen people? Not only do I not need it, I've never needed a house to this point, have I ever complained that I didn't have one? I delighted in being amongst my people. I delighted in being at the tabernacle. I delighted in going from place to place as the people of God were directed by the Shekinah glory, the the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of light by night I delighted in doing that I, I, I directed your paths I directed your paths even when it was difficult I led you right up to the edge of the Red Sea and put your enemies at your rear you had no place to go and who delivered you from that that was me and you carried the Ark of the Covenant across what did they do when they got across the river they built an altar to God Twelve stones from the bed of, of, uh, of the Red Sea. That wouldn't be the only time they would do that. His, the fathers of David, when God's great mercies were shown toward Israel, they did monuments to God. David's wanting to do the same thing. He, he wants to follow in the, in, the, in, in the actions of his father here. He's wanting a good thing. But the Lord said, have I complained about not having a house? I understand what you're doing, David, but I haven't needed that. In verse 10, things are now changing. Notice in verse 10 that God says, I will plant my people Israel, and it is now appropriate for me to have a house for my name, God says. But just as God didn't allow the Israelites to build the house the way they want or the temple the t- tabernacle the way they wanted to in the early days of their deliverance following Egypt God gave them specific directions to do it he's now saying i understand what you want to do but when my house gets built i'm the one that needs to build it you don't know how to it's almost as if he's saying you don't know how to build a house for god i appreciate your desire But this is well beyond your ability. Now think about this. How do you build a house for God? He's a spirit. God is a spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Where do you start to build a house for God? He's, He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Wait a minute. Wouldn't that be a little claustrophobic if you build a house for God? To try to contain God, how do, where do you start? It, it, it's an impossible task. I think God is being gracious to David here, David. I appreciate your desire, but you don't build me a house that way. You don't the, the cedars of Lebanon as, as beautiful as they are, as palatial your house is, it's going to it, it can't be done. What you're desiring can't be done. And then in verse th- 13. Not only is it time for me to have a house where my name will abide. I agree with that because I'm going to plant the people of Israel. I'm going to stop this this constant movement. We're going to to take the promised land and we're going to use the promised land for the glory of God. But in verse 13, not only is it time for me to have a house where my name will abide, I will have your son build it. Now this is important. This is really important. Because he chooses Solomon to be the builder. And I'm going to get to why that's important in just a minute. But lastly, before we move on, verses 12 through 16, this house that shall be built will not only be a physical structure in Jerusalem, but it shall be an everlasting house for the lineage of David for eternity. Now, I've I've drawn this this to your attention in the past. I, I want to do it again here. When we we see the word house, we often think of a a structure, right? It's made with wood or or brick or stone or even a thatched structure. Maybe maybe you live in, we don't live in the tropics here, but in the tropics they don't need brick and some of those things to build houses. They don't have bricks. They have palm leaves and they have, basically all they have are, are, as plant life, to, to build things with. And uh, those can, you can build houses with that, that kind of material, and it's sufficient for, for needs. We think of houses that way. Well, do, is that the only way to think of a house? Obviously, David is being told, not, David's thinking of structure, and God is thinking both structure, that form, as well as the form of a people. a a clan, a lineage, a a group of people. That's what God is saying. You can't contain me in a structure, nor can you contain my lineage in a structure. But I'm going to build a people for my name. David's kingship would be followed by Solomon, the son, who would actually build the structure that David anticipates. But before we we consider that, not only was the physical structure about to be built a house in the name of David, that house had a very specific attribute, and that attribute can be seen, will not be seen until David's son comes on the scene David's son who was the product of David's sin with Bathsheba, his adulterous affair with a woman. God's house had to be a house of redemption, a house of mercy. Not only should it be a house where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat would be found because that's where God's name would abide where the ark of the covenant would abide that's God's mercy seat that house had to be inhabited by a people who had obtained God's mercy so not only was there physical manifestations of mercy but there needed to be human manifestations of mercy as well Brethren, our God chooses the weak and despised things of the world to confuse the wise and the mighty in this world. Those who would inhabit the house of God would have to be those who are meek and humble. And here in our passage in verse 8, God speaking through his servant Nathan says, I took you, talking about David, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. In that economy, few people could get a a more humble occupation than a shepherd. And God is saying, I'm taking a humble man and making him a king. David, you're that humble man. David's kingship would be followed by Solomon, who was not a shepherd, He was an illegitimate son born to a murderous and an adulterous father. A despised son. He's going to build the house. Of all people, an illegitimate son born to a man who committed adultery and murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. It will be that son that will build the house. Our Lord was a commoner, the son of a carpenter, just as the son of Jesse who tended sheep in the field was a commoner. Jesus was born in meekness and laid in a manger. Though there were those who acknowledged his kingship, the angelic host that proclaimed his coming, and later the Magi who would travel to to, uh, uh, his home uh, to give gifts to a king and to worship him, the purpose they went there for was to worship him. Notice again, the, the Magi were Gentiles. It's interesting that the Gentiles came to worship him, but the people who lived right next to him had no time for it. Jesus was a commoner, and it's interesting that he was the son of a builder, a carpenter. Jesus would be a builder as well. He's going to build an entire kingdom for his father. Similarly, our Lord was typified in the person of Solomon. Just as he was typified in David's humility, he's typified in Solomon's Sin. Now, I have to be really careful when I say this. Our Lord never sinned. He was perfect. But when he hung on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our text, verse 14, I will be his father, God is speaking about Solomon, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Who does that sound like? But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Notice that the sanctions of this covenant will come against one who is a sinner or in the case of our Lord Jesus who bore our sin, but His mercy would not depart. Again, I have to be very, very careful. I believe this description of Solomon is a description of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as I say this, I must point out that Jesus never sinned against the Father as Solomon did. But both are men of mercy. Jesus did bear our sins on the cross such that the Father had to forsake his only begotten Son when his wrath was poured out. But when Jesus rose that third day conquering sin and death putting it behind him mercy was had for the house of David. All the house of David. Again 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is commonality here in verse 14 between Solomon and and our Lord Jesus. Jesus would endure, would endure the chastening of God with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, as did Solomon. Jesus did it to purchase our redemption. The crucial difference, again, is that Jesus did not die for any sin He committed. He died bearing our sins on the cross. Now there's also commonality here because God the Son, Jesus our Lord and Redeemer could not be held in the grip of sin and death. Remember the promise here is that I will not withdraw my mercy from your son David. I will not withdraw that mercy. Sin and death could not hold Jesus. And all of human history has changed because of Jesus rising from the dead to newness of life. God's eternal wrath was absorbed by the eternal Son when Jesus became sin for us. And in the resurrection, Jesus presents to the Father those the Father has given to him, those who have been cleansed at the mercy seat of God by the blood of the eternal Lamb. The blood that forever declares our redemption in the Son is sprinkled at the very mercy seat of the Father in heaven and is here prominently displayed in the Davidic Covenant. Solomon's sins would not be held against him. He would not be held by their grip. The mercy of God would bring everlasting forgiveness to the sins of the lineage of David, you and me, and his house would be inhabited by a people who had obtained mercy, the mercy of God himself. Now additionally, we must not lose light of the dwelling place of God here. The New Testament tabernacle of God speaks of us being the dwelling place of God. God no longer dwells in tents made with, by the hands of men. He dwells in men themselves. God tabernacles with us by his Spirit in the hearts of men and women, and men and women who have placed their eternal lives in the care of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of our faith, cornerstone, house, house, They all go together. Jesus is that chief cornerstone. And men and women who by the son of of David promised in this covenant, Jesus being our chief cornerstone, provides for us the blood sprinkled at the very mercy seat of God, the mercy that we need, promised for our salvation in the Davidic covenant. Well, let me draw this to a close. How shall we then live? Knowing that we are the recipients of the Davidic covenant. I'll speak to that much more precisely in Sunday school. Knowing that we're recipients of the Davidic covenant. The promises that are given to David and his lineage means you. David is your father as well. You are in the lineage of David because if you are in Christ, he is in David. Christ is in David. Those who are in Christ are in David. It's inescapable according to the scriptures. That promise given to David is your promise. That I will show you mercy forever. That your sins will not capture you and hold you for my wrath. You will receive mercy Is that not what comes in the New Covenant? That God will remember our sins no more? Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 10. That's Jeremiah chapter 33. He will remember our sins no more. That's the promise. And that comes from the Davidic Covenant. Okay. Brethren, how shall we then live? I don't have time to go through the last part of the chapter. I'll do that next week last part of this chapter it's there's two prayers here that david gives but let me just quickly talk to you about those two prayers it's it's uh having gone through having heard what we heard this past uh three days the elders down in in uh, atlanta it's providential that i have this portion of to end up with here in the sermon today on prayer brethren I believe David's response to this profound promise of God to him and to his progeny is an example that we must emulate. His response is what our response must be. So time does not permit a careful consideration of David's response. Again, I mentioned I'll speak to that next week, verses 18 through 29. David responds humbly. Communing with God in prayer. One of the speakers this past weekend mentioned something kind of in passing, but man, it stuck in my head. Why did Jesus come to this earth and die on the cross and rise again the third day for our justification? Why did he do that? To restore communion with God. To restore our communion with God. And how do we, how can we most easily practice communing with God? How about prayer? Communication, communion, same antecedent. Communing with God means we have to communicate with him. He communicates with us all the time. It's all around us. The glory of creation speaks to us, right? The psalmist says. The word of God is right before us. We can pick it up any time we want. How often do we communicate with him? God the Father sent God the Son to die and rise from the dead that communion with him could be restored for eternity. God the Holy Spirit has made that reality known to us because his spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons and daughters of God. Think about that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, that we might be restored as the family of God. All three persons worked in concert to make us a house for his name in the lineage of David. When David heard these words, this promise at the beginning of chapter 7, 2 Samuel, when David heard these words from God from the mouth of Nathan the prophet, I am certain that David was overwhelmed with humility. David is almost speechless. The first couple of sentences out of his mouth to God in this prayer speak to that. Yet he summons these words of humility before God. Listen to what he says. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? What more can David say to you? Those were his words. What more can I say to you? You have chosen me. And his spirit would not depart from David, even though David's sin would be greater, probably, than most everybody in this room. I don't know of anybody here that's committed murder, but David would. David is humiliated, not in a bad sense. He is humbled to the point of incredible thanksgiving. My house, you've brought me this far, and yet you've promised so much more beyond this? Who am I? I'm a lowly shepherd. I don't deserve any of this. When we consider from where God has brought us and to what God has promised us, is it any wonder that when we read these words of David's speechlessness that we shouldn't also be just as speechless? Why me? Why would you choose me? Brethren, once again, God's mercy as promised to David and his progeny, us, was new this very morning. There's not a day that passes that his mercy doesn't come to you. There's not a moment that you take breath that God's mercy doesn't rain on you when that sun rises in the morning and dispenses the darkness, God is showing you his mercy. When the darkness comes at night, and the lesser light shone in the darkness, God is saying, I am merciful to you, my people. Darkness comes in our lives, doesn't it? And yet, light shines through that darkness. The promises of God are the things that we cling to. And we wait for the dawning of the sun, don't we? The very course of the heavens points to the mercy of God. Every time it rains. Well, we have some real storms here. And sometimes the rain can be used by God as a judgment, can't it? But more often than not, what does it do? It brings life to the world. That's God's mercy. Now you may have had plans that day and grumble and complain a little bit because of God's rain please don't give thanks and go ahead and do what you were going to do. That's God's mercy. The sunshine itself, the warmth, even on a cold day, that warmth will pierce right through the cold, won't it? Especially when you're sitting in the car next to the window or in the back here, like the Patrick's are with the sun coming through the the windows. Um, That's God's mercy. He pierces through our circumstance with his loving kindness because we are the objects of his affections. And you have that for eternity. It's time to give thanks.